When I was a child, I used to sit in church every Sunday morning, and my memory, and my memory might be incorrect, but my memory is that the person that preached to me was someone who was fairly limited in his ability to preach on anything other than the subject of how to become a Christian. I had a, and some of you have heard this story, that I had a struggle when I was in high school with a particular uh, sexual sin. And one time, in desperation, I, 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 I broke through the boundary and I talked to my mother about it. And I said, Mud, would you talk to Dad about this and ask Dad what I should do? And the answer that came back through my mother was less than satisfactory. I won't, I, I won't tell you what the answer was, but it didn't really help me, all right? And uh, so then I went to my, my pastor. And it was a very intimidating thing to go to his office. Maybe it's intimidating for you to come to mine. But his office was a very serious office of a very large church, and it was very foreboding and intimidating. And I went in, and I sat down, and I told him my problem. And I asked him what I should do. And he looked at me, and he said, Well, Tim, have you asked Jesus Christ to come into your heart? Well, let me tell you, if there was one thing I had done and done and done and done over and over and over again, it was ask Jesus into my heart. I've been told to do that every, every, almost every day in school when I was back in Philadelphia, and then I've been told to do that every day in school in Wheaton. And uh, every retreat seemed to have that as the goal of the retreat, and every Sunday morning sermon seemed to have that as the goal of the sermon. So yes, I had asked Jesus into my heart. And I said to him, well, that's not the problem. I've asked Jesus into my heart. I am a believer, but I have this problem. And he said, well, Tim, have you asked Jesus into your heart? And so really, at that point, I despaired of having sexual purity as a Christian. My pastor had nothing to say to me, and it seemed like my father had nothing to say to me. And week after week, I, I listened to the sermons, and I thought, well, <laughs> you know, I guess what I'm supposed to do is ask Jesus into my heart. And I'd done it over and over again. Now, I don't know how many of you have had this experience, but it's one of the great tragedies of biblical teaching and preaching. It's the great tragedy of our homes and of our understanding of Scripture that this probably is the, the understanding of many of you of when you're struggling with besetting sin, what should you do? Well, you should ask Jesus into your heart. And of course, as soon as you ask Jesus into your heart, then everything will be okay. Well, if that were true... I couldn't go through the list of people who have been a part of this church in the last 10 years and see so many of them who have now denied the faith. Because they asked Jesus into their heart, and you say, well, how could they deny their faith if they asked Jesus into their heart? And I say, well, look at the New Testament. Doesn't the New Testament record people by name who have denied the faith? And you say, well, what's the condition of their hearts then? And I say, I'm not getting into that this morning. I'm simply saying that there were many people in the early church who did deny the faith. And the problem wasn't that they just needed to be told once again, we'll pray to receive Jesus into your heart. The Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians 
even when he's dealing with people being told that it's by being circumcised and observing holy days and other works of the law that they'll be saved, doesn't just say to them, well, ask Jesus into your heart again, does he? No, he gives them doctrine. He gets very particular about words, about concepts. And he throws it at him again and again and again and again. And he takes his whole personality and he puts it on the line with them. He says, listen, you know, forget me as long as you look to Jesus. You know, forget them because they're telling you not to look to Jesus. Listen, I'm here and I'm telling you, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He, he, everything he can do, he points them to Jesus. He doesn't point them to asking Jesus into their heart and praying the sinner's prayer. He doesn't say, well, your problem is that you've never become a Christian. Never do you find the Apostle Paul saying that. And so, what I want to start out by saying this morning is that uh, the process of being free is the process of clinging to freedom. And the process of clinging to freedom is the process of resisting those who will take the freedom from you. And it is all very, very active. And it's not simply saying to Jesus, come into my heart again. Now, at this point, I think most of you are in agreement with me. Most of you agree that Christians should not be perpetually saying to God, come into my heart. Jesus, come into my heart. I'm going to become a Christian and I'm going to really mean it this morning. Or this morning, I'm going to recommit my life to Jesus Christ and I'm going to get baptized again. Maybe if I be, I'm baptized again. That's not the answer. The answer is not going back and doing again the thing we did the day that we believed. That's not the answer. Now, the answer may be stirring up our faith, stirring up our belief. That's always a good thing to do, and it always produces spiritual fruit. But if you think that it's just one more Billy Graham crusade to walk forward, and then you'll be free of sexual sin or whatever your besetting sin is, it's simply not the answer. Now, you might say, well, then forget freedom from sexual sin. I guess that's just a burden I have to live with. And I say to you, how can the Apostle Paul speak about freedom and then you be in bondage your entire life to sexual sin? That's no freedom. What freedom is that? <laughs> I mean, you know that's not freedom. And so what happens is some of us learn, well, we ought not to keep asking Jesus into our heart. And so what we need to do is walk the whole way over here and just forget the law. That is such a burden, you know. The law, that is such a negative trip, negative confession, you know. From now on, I'm going to think and I'm going to picture myself seated in the heavenlies. And if I can just repeat the mantra often enough and, and, and somehow, you know, break on through to the other side. This is a theme with me this week. I just have this Doors song going through my mind because it seems to me so perfectly typical of what is taught about sanctification in the evangelical church today. There is a secret, all right? And if you seize the secret, then you will break on through to the other side, okay? And it is true that we disagree over what the secret is. You can have many, many arguments with different tr types of Christians as to what the secret is to true sanctification, to being changed as a Christian, to being done with your besetting sin. Some people will tell you that the secret is what? You know, come on, stir up your brains, think. 
What will some people tell you that the secret is that will allow you to break on through to the other side? Some people will tell you it's what? Speaking in tongues, right? They'll tell you that if you're baptized in the Spirit and you speak in tongues, which is the proof that you've been baptized in the Spirit, then you will what? You will break on through to the other side. Okay? All right, now what are some other ones? Some other ones, some people will tell you that you need to realize um, what it means to walk in grace. It's a grace walk. And that if you really appropriate what the nature of grace truly is, I mean really appropriate it, now you realize as I'm talking that I'm making fun of it. Because the really appropriating grace ends up being another work of the law. But it's, it's not something that you pick up a hammer and you hit a nail. It's something that uh, you work on intellectually. It's a mantra, you see? You just repeat it over and over and over and over again. And if you finally get it, the secret to sanctification is realizing what the real nature of grace is. All right? And so this can be something that allows you to break on through to the other side. What are some other things? Well, if you really are some of those who are in the know and you, you go deep into the faith, deep, you will come up with Reformed doctrine. And once you get Reformed doctrine, you break on through to the other side. All right, some people will tell you that it's... Uh, and, I, you know, you can go on and on. They'll tell you to attend the Keswick Convention. You know, this was... This was our grandparents, you know. They'd, they'd go to Keswick in England or they'd go to some Bible conference and set up tents in this country and they'd be taught about the, the nature of sanctification and they'd be taught that they ought not to let sin rule in their hearts and that if you will just give yourself to the Lord completely, give yourself completely, let go and let God, all right? That then what? You'll break on through to the other side, you'll flip up to another plateau of sanctification and you will no longer, and I kid you not, they'll say it, you'll no longer sin. Now, how many of you have in your childhood been taught that that really is the normal Christian life, that you will break through to a point where you will not sin? Raise your hand. Okay, now look, there are hands up. Only one, honestly, but some of you, I know you grew up in churches like that. Apparently, they didn't have the guts to teach you the doctrine that they believed in. Any church that's a part of the Wesleyan tradition believes that. All right? If you grew up in a Wesleyan or a Nazarene church, that's their doctrine. And I had an honest Wesleyan pastor friend up in Wisconsin who admitted perfect sanctification. Dave, you remember David, boss? Perfect sanctification was, was the goal, right? And so one day in a pastoral meeting, I'm looking at him and I'm saying, you know, I know David, you know, I know him. And I'm looking at him and saying, David, do, do you really believe that you don't sin? And David, bless his heart, was honest. And, and he started blubbering, you know. Um, now, I don't mean that he wasn't intelligible, but I mean he just began to be very apologetic and to admit, no, he didn't claim to have per perfect sanctification himself. Okay? But he fully admitted that was the doctrine of his church. So, any of you have heard Brother Smock? Have you heard him preach on any of the campuses you've been a part of? He goes around the country preaching. Jed Smock, you've heard him? Come on. All right, now we're getting more hands. 
All right, Jet. I'll never forget it. UW-Madison, right there on Library Mall one day. He's, he's being heckled, as he always was. And he's asked whether he ever sins. And he says, no, I, I do not consciously sin anymore. And said it in front of lots of people. Okay, so what's my point? My point is this. Christians are not done with sin. Number two, Christians have besetting sin. Number three, the answer to besetting sin is not constantly giving your life to Jesus and praying the sinner's prayer. All right? Number four, the answer is not any of these break-on-through-to-the-other-side trips that are absolutely bunk and unbiblical. They're just unbiblical. You do not find in the New Testament records of people who have broken on through to the other side and no longer deal with sin. It's heaven that that comes. It's glorification. All right? It just doesn't come in this life. Now, don't think I'm promoting sin. I'm not. I know how you grieve over your sin. I'm a sinner. It breaks our hearts. I'm not trying to get you to become without compunction of conscience. I'm not trying to encourage you to have a hard heart towards your sin because after all, Jesus has done the work and that's all there is to say about it. Alright? So what is the answer? Well, some of you are wishing I'd read Scripture to you and I'm going to, but I want to create the problem for you first so you feel like Scripture solves something for you. Alright? The answer is not lies. The answer is not lying to yourself. It's not lying to others about what Scripture says. The answer is to speak biblically and to think biblically. In other words, the answer is to allow the Holy Spirit to teach us and then to reflect what the Holy Spirit has taught us in the way we pray, the way we teach our children, the way we talk to other Christians, the way we do this thing called church. Now, let me ask you to turn to Scripture and turn specifically to Galatians chapter 5. And we're going to read the first six verses. I have no idea how long we're going to be on the first six verses. We'll be there a while. Um, And we're going to end up having a series of sermons on verse 6. Because verse 6, a certain individual in our church has by fiat uh, decreed that this will be the theme verse, the motto verse, the touchstone verse of our church. And it wasn't me. (laughs) Come on, fess up. Oh, it was Allie, huh? (laughs) It was Pastor Carell. And I think it's a very, very good theme verse. Well, let's read Galatians 6, verses 1. Let me see. I'm just going to... I'm a very confused man. Galatians 5. All right, there we have it. Okay, Galatians 5, 1 to 6. Thanks, Carol. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you, that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. And that's the motto. Faith working through love. This is the Word of God, and it's eternally true. Now, when we first started studying Galatians, we said that Galatians has three sections, all right? And basically, you can break them down by chapter. Chapters 1 and 2, chapters 3 and 4, chapters 5 and 6. So here we have the beginning of the third section of Galatians. Chapters 1 and 2 can be called all different kinds of things, but we're going to go with the label history for chapters 1 and 2, doctrine chapters 3 and 4, and ethics chapters 5 and 6. So here, with the beginning of chapter 6, we turn to the section dealing with ethics. Now, what does ethics mean? Well, we all know that hospitals today have ethics committees. And we know that in philosophy departments, they have courses on ethics. We know that if you go to medical school, you have to take courses on ethics. Um, Generally, I think that as things are talked about more in a culture, they're understood less. I think there's like a negative correlation between the way a culture speaks and what it really lives. So, like, for instance, one of the most popular words today is love. And I don't think love has ever been at a lower ebb than it is in our culture today. All right? Now, what are ethics? Well, ethics, um, people would say, people that teach ethics courses at universities and people that are on ethics committees would, would be willing to use another word in parallel construction as a synonym for ethics. And what would the word be? The word would be values. All right? Ethics are values. And if you look it up on, the, on an online thesaurus, that's one synonym that you'll be given, values. Um, let me give you some other synonyms. Uh, ideals. Ethics. Ideals. Imperatives. Well, that's a little bit different than ideals, isn't it? Moral code, morality, mores, principles, standards, and values. Now, I think it's very interesting that the last two that were given on this particular thesaurus are what? Standards and values. Now, if you have an ear for words, certainly you hear that there's a huge difference between those two words. The word standard and the word value have a completely different affect, you know? One of them I feel fairly comfortable with and the other one I don't really like. And, of course, it's not values that I don't like, although I don't like it, and I'll get to that in a second. But it's actually the word standards, you know? I don't want to be subject to standards, you know? Out in Boulder, where we lived for a year, I worked there at a church, they have something on the south side of town in the foothills that's called the National what? The National Bureau of Standards. And I can tell you that there aren't a bunch of Bible scholars sitting there discussing the Ten Commandments. You know, it's stuff like how you determine what a centimeter is and what an inch is, and they're probably ground zero of the place where they think we should switch over completely to the metric system, right? The National Bureau of Standards, all right? Now, what, is, what are values? Well, values are the opposite of standards. National Bureau of Standards doesn't think that it's just speaking for itself. It's national. It's a bureau. It's speaking for all of us. In other words, these are objective measurements of what's right and wrong. That's what they're promoting at the National Bureau of Standards. So when you use the word standards about our lives, these are things that everybody thinks apply to everyone and are objectively true. 
All right. Well, when you use the word values, what are you saying? The very use of the word is saying that it's something that is subjective. It's something that you and I can choose at will, that it only reflects my own personal convictions of what's right and wrong. All right? And yet both values and standards are used as synonyms for what? For ethics. Now, what's the point of this? Well, the last third of the book of Galatians is the ethical content of Galatians. And so what we're dealing with here are standards or values. <laughs> and I'm trying to get you to hate the word values, all right? And you say, well, why should I hate the word values? It's the lingua franca. It's the way people communicate in our culture. And I say the reason you should hate the word values is that every single time you refer to values, you are tipping your hat to the decadence of our culture in denying that God has moral character which sets the theme for the world. Every single time, you are allowing people to marginalize the objective content of God's character. And you think, oh, come on, that's not all going on every time I use the word values. I'm telling you, it is. You watch. If it really isn't a big deal, try not to use the word and feel everything inside of you saying, oh no, I better use the word. And I'm saying, why do you feel like you have to use the word? Well, because you have to tip the, the hat to the new constitution. Make way for the new revolution. Right? Values. Alright? I defy you to go a week without using the word. And then you'll find out how difficult it is. Now, you might think, well, you're, you're imbalanced, Tim. You know, you're a wacko preacher of Scripture, you know. Get your head out of the clouds, come back into the real world, right? Oh, you world-weary ones, you're so wise. <laughs> we preachers are so dumb. <laughs> okay, listen. Andrew, you better sit back further. <laughs> and you better go to the back because I'm starting to rip up you, you know. It's a little bit danger. <laughs> <laughs> I was kidding, but <laughs> it's the best compliment I'll ever give you. <laughs> Carol's still here, though, so we're still in danger. Okay, listen. About 15 years ago, there was a book written by, called The Closing of the American Mind. It was written by a man who uh, was very, very uh, agnostic, a philosophy professor at University of Chicago. It's an excellent book. If you're at the university, you should read the book, okay? He's a pagan. And he was the one who first taught me that I should never use the word values. Why? Because he said, you're giving in to the relativists. You're, you're agreeing with them that there is no such thing as an objective standard of right and wrong. Now, here's an ironic thing. Come back now to the question of ethics. Say the last third of the book is Paul giving to us standards of right and wrong. And I say to you, what's going on here? Haven't we spent the first two-thirds of the book whooping up on objective standards of right and wrong in their place in the Christian life. Hasn't the Apostle Paul spent the first two-thirds of the book telling us that we ought no longer to be under what? Under law. 
Hasn't he spent the first two-thirds of the book telling us that we are free from the law? So what's going on here? It's very interesting. If you look at the text, in verse 1 it says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. And so how could you go from two-thirds of a book on freedom, move yourself into the last third, and have it be law? Have it be standards? Have it be objective statements of the character of God and how it works out in our life. Doesn't that seem twisted? And you see, it's right here where you have been softened up so that you can have one of these new paths to sanctification given to you. It's right here where you're vulnerable to somebody coming in and saying, hey, break on through to the other side. You know, come to our church and you'll be baptized and slain in the Spirit and you'll break on through to the other side and and, and you'll no longer have to worry about these codes and these standards. You'll be in a grace walk. You know, you'll be able to see that you're seated in the heavenlies and you'll learn the... And here's the word. You'll learn the... Now, do you know what I'm going to say? What's the word? The secret. You know? And it's so seductive. And snakes hiss. Okay? The minute you're told that there is a secret to sanctification, what you're also told without it ever being stated is that once you get it, you will break on through to the other side. And the point of breaking through to the other side is that you don't have to sweat and toil and labor. And it's not painful. And God won't have to discipline you. And you will never have to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do you understand this? So you take the first two-thirds of the book of Galatians and you look at the last third and you say, I don't need this. I already am aware of my sin, of my failures. I am aware of my besetting sins. I don't need this. I'm going to skip directly from Galatians 1-4 to to the beginning of... uh, And you can name any kind of doctrinal place. Romans is a favorite. And, and I'm going to break on through to the other side. And so people go through their Christian lives thinking that it is wrong for them to do anything other than repeat these mantras in their heads that they are free in Christ. Now, if that's the case, look at verse 1 with me. Why does it say this? It was for freedom that Christ set us free. And most of the churches in the country would stop right there. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And we would spend the next three years talking about how Christ has set us free and how Christ can set you free. Now, I'm not denigrating those doctrines. They're true. But notice how the second half of the verse goes, Therefore, keep standing firm and not, do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Now, does that sound like you're free? It doesn't. It doesn't sound like you're free. Because if you have a statement of your freedom and then immediately a command, it's like, okay, which is it, the Apostle Paul? Which is it, Holy Spirit? Am I free or am I not free? And somebody comes along and says to you, the secret to sanctification is, and you go, yeah, because this tension is unbearable. I want to live in the already. I don't want to go to the not yet. You know, would you please resolve this tension for me? My marriage is unbearable. 
And I freely admit that half, if not more, of the problem in my marriage is myself. Right? Okay, I'm not putting the blame game on my wife or on my husband. I'll admit to 50%, 60 70 80 90% of the problems in my marriage. Right? Okay? But, but does God really intend us to spend our lives yoked together, not even liking one another? Do you know I don't love my wife anymore? I go, duh. You must be married more than 24 hours. Of course you don't love your wife anymore. (laughs) That's the nature of the sanctifying blessing of marriage. Mothers will say, I don't love my children anymore. I don't love my daughter anymore. You go, duh. That's why she's your child, your daughter. (laughs) You know? Because you can't get rid of her. All right? You made her. You want to know why it takes counting to ten for her to obey you? It's because you taught her not to obey you until you count to ten. That's what Doug Wilson says. All right? She is your character. So if you don't like her, look at yourself. You've reproduced her. Sitting at a soccer game a couple weeks ago. My son Joseph next to me. The ref was pretty pathetic, which is fairly frequent at these games. Yesterday it was hilarious. All you had to do was clear your throat and the ref would like have a bad conscience and like five seconds after the fact, call a foul. <laughs> I mean, you could actually predict what they would do by... It was really interesting. So, at one point, Joseph yells at the ref something. I don't remember. What did you yell at him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She doesn't know why you called the foul. Do you? (laughs) And I kept my mouth shut. (laughs) I wasn't a fool. I know the rules of cutter soccer, (laughs) which are that if you say anything to the ref, you will get called on the carpet because three years ago, I cleared my throat prominently. That's all I did, right? And did I get yelled at? (laughs) All right. I went, (coughs) you know, and I got yelled at. So after the game, I went up to the ref across the field and I said, I just want you to know, I was not the one that was yelling at you because the ref stopped and turned to Joseph and said, I've had enough out of you, you know, or that's enough out of you. You be quiet, (laughs) you know, something like that. Yeah, okay. So I went over to the ref and I apologized. I said, I want you to know, I was not the one that was yelling at you. I didn't want to get in trouble. I said, that was my son. It wasn't me. I didn't say a word. (laughs) But then I said what? I said to the ref, but it is true that the acorn never falls far from the tree. You know? And so what's the point? Well, the point is, that we as parents, we as husbands and wives, feel the tension of loving the people God has given us in our own home, of living with them. We feel the tension in our own hearts when we can get rid of everybody else and not blame anybody else. It's nobody else. And we just look at night when we're lying in bed at who we are. We don't like it. We know we gossip. We know we lie. We know we lust. We know we're greedy. We know we're idolaters. We know that this is who we are. And so we have this desire to be who Christ has made us to be. And we know that law isn't the answer. We can't turn again and try to observe the law because the letter kills. So what's the resolution? I want to tell you that the resolution is that there is no resolution this side of heaven. 
And until you get that into your brain, you're going to be subject to so much false doctrine. There are so many lies going around the church where people claim to have an angle. Okay? And there is no angle. There are innumerable bondages that you can fall into seeking an angle. All right? But they're bondages. Every single one of them is the renewal of your slavery that you escape by faith in Jesus Christ. Do you understand this? Every single person that tells you that they have the secret to your sin, your besetting sin, your ongoing bondage, all right? And that solution is not simply the statement of Scripture, what? And I'm going to say it again. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Any statement that tells you you can break on through to the other side, if you will simply observe this, and it does not have this as its content. Now, not the exact words, but the feeling, all right? Anything that doesn't have this as the content. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be a subject again to the yoke of slavery. Anything that tells you that you can break on through to the other side, all right? And does not involve that pressure cooker, that vice grip, that intense demand that you hear the truth and that you live the truth at the same time. Do you understand that? Is a lie. It's not biblical, my dear brothers and sisters. You know, at this point, I wish I could come to every one of you and just grab you and say, it's a lie. Don't listen to them. You cannot have heaven on earth. You say, oh, well, that's impious. The Bible says we're seated in the heavenlies. Yes, we are judicially, forensically. In other words, as eternity looks at us, we are dressed in the righteousness of Christ. This is the reason you can come and sing songs that aren't true. (laughs) You say, well, they are true. And I say, oh, yes. So you sit there every week thinking, this is true of me. No, you don't. You sit there and think, this is a song I sing, what? By faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you say, yes, the Holy Spirit indwells me, and so it is true of me. And I say, yes. So therefore, keep standing firm in your faith. Do not become subject again to the yoke of slavery. You say, the Holy Spirit will have to do that for me. I say, yes. And the Holy Spirit will use you working out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is the power of God that worketh in you. This is always the way Scripture handles this. Oh, man. And so you wonder why I'm emotional. I'm emotional because the, the, you know, I have told Dawn so many times that I have such anger against the church she was raised in. I don't know anything about the church she was raised in, but I know the type because I lived those types. These people who never hold out to James Joyce the solution to his sexual sin. You know, how many of the authors you read about how they came of age? And what was it? It was their inability to deal with their sexual sin that caused them to despair of there being a hope in eternity. And so what did they become? They became decadent intellectuals. 
And it happens again and again and again. Is it any surprise that James Joyce was raised in a Roman Catholic nation? What could James Joyce have been? You say, who's James Joyce? It doesn't matter. He's an author. All right. What could James Joyce have been if he had heard the gospel of freedom in Christ? If he had read Galatians? If he had learned that Jesus Christ has come to set us free from sin? You say, well, that's what the Roman Catholic Church taught him. And I say, that's the one thing the Roman Catholic Church never taught him. The Roman Catholic Church never called him to be free of the bondage of sexual sin. You say, oh, but that's the essence of the Roman Catholic Church. They tell you to avoid, to avoid mortal sins. I say, yeah, that's precisely the case. They teach you to avoid mortal sins, and then they teach you that if you get to the point where you do avoid mortal sins, you might be worthy of heaven. And that's a sure prescription for despair. It's the same despair. Thank you, David. It's the same despair that Pink Floyd has in the dark side of the moon. All right? Do you understand? James Joyce, the Roman Catholic Church, and Pink Floyd are all the same. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to pull it off. <laughs> but I'm going to try. All right? All of them give you what? They give you what? They give you fatalism. I'll see you on the dark side of the moon. There's no hope in Pink Floyd. There's no hope in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, do you struggle with spiritual, fleshly, sinful bondage? And if you're an honest woman, an honest man, you will admit to me that, yes, you constantly have unbelief. You constantly resent the dispensations of God in your life. Come on. Come on. Be honest with me. Even you who are at the flower, the springtime of life, resent the dispensations God has given you in your life. So what is the answer? The answer is, you have been given freedom by faith in Jesus Christ. Do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. And you say, but I feel. And I say, of course you feel. But you're seated in the heavenlies. You say, well, you just told me there's no secret. It's not being seated in the heavenlies. It's not a secret. It's a statement of fact. And it's not going to cause you to be able to be done with all of your unbeliefs and all of your lusts and all of the greed and all of the resentment and all the bitterness that you have in your life. You say, but the Bible doesn't teach us that we should be subject to this slavery. I say, no, it says you've been created for freedom, so be free. You say, well, this is like crazy making. I say, okay, but it's biblical. It is what Scripture says. It says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Why? Come on. For it is what? Come on, speak up. Quote it. It is God who's working in you. You say, but that's like, that's like doublespeak. That's doublespeak. We're not supposed to give ourselves to work. We're supposed to give ourselves to faith. We're supposed to realize we're seated in the heavenlies. I say, okay, fine. You want to break on through to the other side? You will submit yourself to the yoke of bondage and you will spend your life seeking a position that God never intended you to have until you are in heaven. 
Okay? If you have an expectation to break on through to the other side, it's because you've gotten false doctrine. And I don't care whether it's a Wesleyan church or an evangelical church or a PCA church that has all this talk about grace and if you just repeat the mantra enough, then you'll break on through. The, I don't care what denomination it is, what doctrine it is. It is creating in you a hunger for something God never intended you to have. God has placed you in that pressure cooker. He has chosen not to take your life the minute you placed your faith in Him, which He could have done. He could have killed you that second and everything would have been okay. You would have broken on through to the other side precisely at the moment that you prayed the sinner's prayer. Do you understand this? But God chose to have you in this life. Why? Hey, guess what, people? If you have rebellion against your father, if you have a dislike for your wife, if you have a resentment for your husband, if you don't like your roommate, guess what? It drives you to your knees to the Holy God and you pray to Him that He will fill your heart with what He wants. You're dependent on God. That's the point. You don't come to church acting as if you're not a sinner because I have nothing to do with you. <laughs> you, you understand? I don't want you here. If you're not a sinner... I won't say it. But it's get the something away from me. You know, I don't want you. You, you understand? This is not the place for anyone who's broken on through to the other side. This is the place for those who know that in the midst of life we live in death. And of whom shall we seek for relief, O Lord, but of thou, who for our sins art justly displeased? And I'm quoting from the Book of Common Prayer. It's the, it's the liturgy at the grave. <laughs> okay? Christians desire three things with regard to sin. Justification that it will not condemn. Sanctification that it will not reign. Glorification that it will not be. And where does glorification come? It comes, brothers and sisters, in heaven. I am not trying to teach you to be complacent with sin. But I want you to understand as we go into the last third of the book of Galatians that the last third, which is the, 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 the third of standards, of commands, because this, therefore you do this, the last third of the book of Galatians begins with a statement, you are free, so be free. Okay? If you think that the teaching of the book of Galatians is a teaching that has to do with saying no any longer to standards and just realizing that we are seated in the heavenlies. I say to you, yes, and that realizing is a lifelong process that requires you to be dependent on the Holy Spirit and to grieve and continue to mourn over your sins, but also to continue to be united by the Holy Spirit with your Savior who is your righteousness. And those sins will drive you continually to rejoice in the Lord always. And rejoicing in the Lord will be your strength. Do you understand that? Wouldn't it be perverse if it was only conversion where we really rejoiced in the Lord and then the rest of our life we just worked? <laughs> no. Constantly our sins drive us to our Savior. 
Constantly, every week, we begin by confessing our sins. Why? Not because we're in a bondage church, a legalistic church, a cult that doesn't believe all the truths of Scripture, but because we're in a biblical church that realizes that we have been made for freedom and that we must seize our freedom, that we must hold on to our freedom, that we must fight against anyone that will put us into bondage. And so every, every week we begin by confessing our sins and then rejoicing in the freedom that Jesus Christ has given us. All right. One more time. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Okay, brothers and sisters? Love the Lord and give yourself to the work that He commands you to do. Those things aren't in opposition to each other. Let's pray.